Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these last years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about what leadership is and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. I'm honored to welcome today's guest, Executive Vice President of Strategy at Modex Therapeutics, Dr. Betsy Nabel. She's a leader with many hats. Her career has spanned the NIH and the NFL. She's excelled as a leader of academic institutions and in pharma and biotech. Among her many roles, Betsy may be best known for serving as the president of Brigham and Women's Hospital for 11 years, focusing on creating a culture centered on innovation and collaboration. A tireless multitasker, Betsy has brought her expertise to the NFL as the chief health and medical advisor from 2015 to 2017, and has served on a number of boards, including Moderna, Medtronic, the Lasker Foundation, and the Broad Institute. Now Betsy is focused on developing cutting-edge cancer therapies at her startup, Modex Therapeutics, which harnesses the power of the immune system to target and attack cancers, and is part of the exciting and rapidly growing field of precision medicine. Betsy, thank you so much for joining me today. Lloyd, I'm honored to be with you. You know, many refer to a career in medicine as a calling. D did you feel this way when you were deciding to go into medicine? And if so, can you describe when you first heard your call and what led you to focus on cardiology? I, I truly believe medicine is a calling. It certainly has been uh, for me. I think I was in high school when I first articulated my interest in going into medicine. Uh, my father was a scientist, a chemist, who, who loved scientific discovery uh, and research and would often talk about it at the dinner table uh, at night. So he really shared his passion with me. At the same time, I enjoyed caring for other people. I enjoyed my personal relationships with other people. And, and I thought medicine was the perfect combination of science, human biology, and really taking care of other people. So that's really how I developed my interest uh, in medicine. How I ended up in cardiology is, is really uh, an interesting uh, story with a bit of a silver lining. I was a fourth year medical student at Cornell uh, in New York City, and I was really quite interested uh, in surgery. I, I enjoy working with my hands. The chief of surgery at Cornell at the time was a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. G. Tom Shires. He was a Texan. He hailed from Parkland. He and his team took care of JFK. Uh, on the unfortunate day he was assassinated. And Dr. Shires had fairly traditional views of the role of women in medicine. And he firmly believed that women should not be surgeons. There was no room for women in surgery. 
So I thought, well, I can, I can push that button, but I'll probably end up a fairly miserable human being. And so I thought, of what, what is sort of the next best field in which I can be active and interventionalist and still take care of people? And so I chose cardiology. I went up to the Brigham and did a fourth year rotation with Dr. Eugene Braunwald. And at that time, the Brigham was a mecca of American cardiology. Uh, and then I was fortunate uh, to match and do my internal medicine and cardiology training there. That's fantastic. And with your leadership, uh, Betsy, the Brigham continues to be a mecca uh, in cardiology and in so many other fields of, of medicine, precision medicine, mm -hmm. precision health today. We, we both share a background as physician scientists, a critical role in biomedicine, and many of today's biggest medical breakthroughs can be traced back to physician scientists. Can you share with us your thoughts on being a physician scientist? You also have been involved both through your leadership in the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and as president of one of the leading academic medical centers in the country. You've been involved in the training of physician scientists. Where do we stand today and what do we need to be doing to ensure our future? Well, Lloyd, I'm a firm uh, believer in the role of, of physician scientists in, in our, our society. When I think back on my career, I think I had three major influences that led me in the direction of being a physician scientist. Uh, the first was my father, who I said earlier uh, was a scientist. He was an inventor, a creator. Uh, and he, he invented a number of, of commercial products uh, for 3M and, and held many uh, patents. And uh, I, I just so vividly recall seeing the excitement, the joy, the sparkle in his eyes when he talked about uh, his discovery and his work. The second major influence on my life in terms of being a physician scientist was Dr. Eugene Braunwald, who was the chair of medicine at uh, the Brigham for many years. And Gene is a remarkable uh, in individual. And uh, if many of your listeners have not had the opportunity, I, I hardly recommend Tom Lee's book that captures Gene's life from Vienna, Austria, to London, England, to the United States, and all that he's contributed uh, to American medicine. Uh, but Gene took morning report. We listened to him. He was a role model. He had high standards for us. He expected us to use our talents. And he expected that we would make major contributions to American medicine. Uh, so it was really within that glow, that halo, uh, that I was, I was raised uh, in medicine. And then finally, uh, I, I would say my husband, Gary, we trained together at the Brigham. He's an MD, PhD. He's been very engaged in research. And, and we've had a wonderful to-fro for the past 38 years. Now, having said all of that as, as background, when I was the director of the NHLBI and I looked across the American landscape and the funding of grants to individuals and institutions, um, it became very clear to me that physician scientists and medical research is a jewel in the crown in this country. Members of Congress believe that firmly. And I think the American people want that as well. And so I think it's behold on, on us as leaders in American medicine, certainly you at a truly outstanding academic medical center, that we must, absolutely must maintain this tradition of training physician scientists. Not all of our physician scientists will stay in academic medicine. 
Many now are going off to do absolutely wonderful things in biotech, in pharma, in government, in public policy, in many other fields. Uh, but, but I do believe that physician scientists are the backbone of American medicine. It's so well stated, and, and certainly I think a unique attribute of our of our system, right? And in, in many uh, in many places where sci great scientific research is done internationally, you don't see the same fusion of clinical medicine and really cutting edge science that that we've been able to foster here in in the United States. Yes, that that's right, and I I think it's it's the ecosystem which is so critical, and certainly it's an important ecosystem that, that you have at Stanford uh, and uh, in, in the Bay Area where clinicians, physician scientists, scientists, bioengineers, uh, you know, experts in multiple fields can come together, work together, and innovate and create together. It's, it's such a special uh, environment that we have here in the United States. When you were in medical school and then residency and, and then fellowship in cardiology and uh, the scientific career that you embarked upon, did you have your sights set on assuming broader leadership roles, or did you contemplate um, the amazing trajectory you've had in, in leadership in American medicine? Well, that's an interesting question, Lloyd. I, uh, I think early on uh, in my career, uh, I, I valued leadership. I, I loved working for strong leaders who nurtured and supported uh, their students and their faculty. So I think I probably quietly thought about leadership, broader leadership roles, but I didn't talk about it at the time. I think what I did is I formed relationships uh, with uh, my mentors or individuals who I thought were role models who were terrific leaders in one way or the other. And I would often talk with them about their leadership or their leadership qualities or how they viewed leadership. And so I, I could learn. Uh, and uh, I, I really think that's probably was, was sort of the basis uh, for, for my growing interest uh, in, in leadership. When I moved from being department chair to provost at Hopkins, my, my wife gave me a wooden box that to this day sits on my desk. And inscribed on it is a quote that's attributed to Lord Chesterfield. And the quote is, in order to discover new oceans, you need to have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And your leadership has spanned research laboratories, academia, government agencies, industry, and now as an entrepreneur, co-leading Bodex Therapeutics. What's been your philosophy as you've navigated your career path, and how do you choose and how have you chosen what you do next? Terrific question, Lloyd. Uh, I've been fortunate that I've just always had a very deep, deep passion for science and medicine. Uh, and, and that's what has driven me to get up every morning and go about and doing the work that I love doing. I don't think I've ever had a day where I thought, oh, gee, I wish I'd gone into law or business or politics. I just am truly passionate about science uh, and, and medicine. So that has really been my, my enthusiasm. Uh, has really been sort of uh, my guide. But having said that, as I've thought about my career pathway and how to make choices, um, I began as a physician scientist at the University of Michigan. Uh, Gary and I had our first academic roles uh, there. 
Uh, I began as an interventional cardiologist uh, and then uh, developed an NIH-funded lab uh, looking at principles of vascular biology, uh, molecular and cellular aspects of vascular uh, biology. Uh, I was fortunate to be asked to take on uh, several leadership roles there, uh, including the directing the Cardiovascular Research Center and then being uh, the division chief uh, for uh, cardiology. I enjoyed those roles uh, uh, very much. Uh, but then uh, Gary had an opportunity uh, to move to the NIH to be the founding uh, director of the Vaccine Research Center. Uh, and that was a terrific opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, uh, and uh, for, for Gary and for our family as, as well. As I thought about my next steps, uh, quite honestly, I was very happy um, at Michigan, loved our cardiology uh, division. Uh, but I, I chose to, to look at, look at um, the world a little bit more broadly and say, gee, I've never thought I would be a government employee. I never thought I'd work at the NIH, but that might be kind of interesting. And how can I use that as an opportunity to learn more about science, to learn more about medicine, in particular, learn about public policy? Uh, and so I joined the NHLBI initially as the scientific director for intramural research, and then eventually uh, as, as the director. And that turned out to be a, a role that I enjoyed tremendously. Uh, the opportunity to interface uh, with uh, leaders in our country uh, in all uh, dimensions was, was really extraordinarily uh, uh, special. So I think as a result of that, Lloyd, I've really thought about my career in almost 10 year stints uh, from physician scientist to NHLVI to back to leader of academic medicine and now uh, in, in um, bio, biotech. But I think that being open to new opportunities and, and heading in, in different directions provides a, a real richness to one's career. Absolutely. So, so while at the NIH, Betsy, you, you achieved so much, but perhaps most visible to the general public is the Red Dress Heart Truth Campaign, which was the first federally sponsored national health educational program. Can you share more about this campaign, and in particular, what made it so groundbreaking and the, challenge you, the challenges you faced as you planned the campaign and assessed its impact? That's a very interesting story. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, there were a, a group of women came to the NHLBI. Th these were, were women who were from the Bethesda, Maryland area. They were in, in their 50s, and several of them had recently had a heart attack and had survived. And they came to the Institute and they, they said, we don't understand why we have heart disease. We thought heart disease was a man's disease. You, you need to embrace this and educate women in this country about the importance of heart disease in women. Women need to understand their risks. The director of the NHLBI at the time uh, was Dr. Claude Lamfont, and he brought a group of us together, women, cardiologists, uh, together within the institute, and said, shall we put together a program to educate women about their risk for heart disease? And we said, absolutely yes. So we got the Heart Truth uh, program uh, going. Shortly thereafter, 
Dr. Lafont retired and I became director and I put the program on steroids. Uh, the first thing we did was to bring in Ogilvy, which was our marketing uh, firm, and we asked them to put a campaign together for us. Now, you wouldn't normally think that an NIH institute would bring in Ogilvy as a marketing firm, but I had a very creative communications team, and that's what we did. So how did the red dress come about? There was a, a woman on the Ogilvy team who lived in New York. Her mother was dying of heart failure. And she was visiting her mother one day in her, in her apartment. Uh, and she was thinking, what is a symbol of heart disease? What is a symbol that all women can identify and relate to? And she was looking in her mother's closet, and she saw a red dress. And she said, that's it. Every woman can relate to a red dress. It's hopeful. It's energetic. It's forward thinking. And so the red dress became the iconic uh, symbol. The next step that happened is that we invited First Lady Laura Bush to be our ambassador. And she accepted uh, women's health issues, and particularly the red dress was one of her causes in addition to education. And she embraced the campaign and amplified its messages tremendously. Um, we did a, a number of speaking tours and engagements uh, together. Uh, I think she enjoyed the work. Uh, and she had a tremendous impact. The, the last feature is also something that you would not normally think a federal agency uh, would do, and that is that Ogilvy and our communication team embraced the entertainment and the fashion industry and asked various components of, of those industries to amplify our message. So the red dress, as you know, has been written up in every women's fashion magazine, Ladies Home Journal, McCall's, etc. cetera. Uh, and in addition, uh, the uh, Ogilvy arranged for there to be a red dress fashion show uh, every year in February, which is uh, Heart Month, um, on the Friday before Fashion Week. And Fashion on Five uh, in New York arranged for American designers each year to design a red dress which was then worn by various women celebrities, whether they be in entertainment, sports, journalism, or whatever. And Mrs. Bush was the MC each year of the Red Dress Fashion Show. Uh, and so that was an iconic event each year that went on for five or six years. Um, a lot of publicity, a lot of media, uh, but really amplified uh, the message uh, uh, tremendously. So what did I learn from all of that? that you can use the role that you're in, your position, as a platform to really advocate for health messages that are gonna be impactful for people across this country. Uh, I, and uh, that the Heart Truth campaign goes on today. The American Heart Association, American Cardiology, College of Cardiology uh, have, have continued it. Uh, but it, it was a powerful campaign and importantly, it educated women about their risk of heart disease. And it continues to have enormous impact. It was such a visionary uh, program to, to launch, Betsy, and the way you, you developed it. And uh, I, have you seen follow-on activities at the NIH or other government agencies learning from the successes of the Heart Truth program? Um, is there, are there now more public-facing activities in other areas of the NIH, for example, around disease groups or, or particular conditions? Yeah. Yes, yes, there are. Following the heart truth, 
several of the institutes came together and formed a program around childhood obesity. Uh, and that uh, served as the foundation for First Lady Michelle Obama's movement around let's move um, you know, a childhood obesity and um, physical, uh, physical health. Um, in addition, there have been a number of public-facing uh, cancer campaigns as well, uh, several that have been done around breast cancer in collaboration with Susan Comain uh, and, and others. No, so it, it's really been a, a wonderful model for, for other very successful programs. That's great. I think you and I both believe that this century will be defined by the life sciences. There are so many breathtaking leaps happening right now. It's almost hard to fathom the progress that we could see over the next few decades in eradicating disease and improving human health. What makes you most excited about the future? And perhaps also you could talk about the work that's going on at Modex Therapeutics and how that fits into your vision for this future of the life sciences and a transformational impact we believe it can have. Yeah. I'm extraordinarily uh, excited uh, around the life sciences. We spoke earlier about precision medicine, uh, and that's really being empowered by the application of molecular biology and, and genetics. You and I trained in the early years of molecular biology and genetics when the scientific principles were first being uh, uh, developed. Uh, for a number of years earlier in my career, I worked on a number of uh, techniques, uh, both basic science and applied, around cardiovascular uh, gene therapy. Our techniques were crude in those days, uh, but we've made advances uh, and the science has moved forward. What I'm so excited about now is we are at the point where we can apply gene editing, CRISPR technology, uh, cell and genetic therapies to human diseases. Uh, the, the number of therapies that are now being uh, developed within academe and within biotech is, is just breathless. Uh, and I think for many of us who grew up in this era of American medicine, it's, it's just is so enormously exciting. Walter Isaacson's book, The Codebreaker, I think captures the story so extremely well, and I would recommend it for any of the listeners who have not had a chance uh, to, to listen to it uh, yet. So uh, fast forward to Modex uh, Therapeutics. Uh, Modex Therapeutics was founded by uh, Dr. Elia Sahuni, uh, former uh, director of the NIH, uh, and my husband, Dr. Gary Nabel, former uh, chief scientific officer at Sanofi. Uh, Dr. Sahuni was also head of global R&D at Sanofi. Uh, and uh, they had developed uh, a number of techniques uh, around uh, multi-specific antibody targeting. It's really a platform uh, technology. That technology now has been spun, spun out of Sanofi and has been built upon, added upon, uh, to develop a number of approaches towards viral diseases and cancer, particularly immunotherapies uh, for cancer. Uh, I left the Brigham after 11 years, a great run, uh, but wanted to now move into biotech, and I joined them about a, a year ago. Uh, and we're working very, very hard uh, to develop a very sophisticated platform technology around multi-specific antibody targeting. The first applications, as I said, will be viral diseases and immunotherapy for cancers, but undoubtedly there will be other applications as well. That's fantastic. Well, we look forward to following the amazing trajectory and progress in the company and so much exciting work to be done. Maybe now we move to 
a topic I know that is on both of our minds a lot these days, and that is trust, trust of science, trust of medicine in, in our society. Uh, a recent Gallup survey uh, before the pandemic showed that people rated nurses and doctors as the most trustworthy and ethical professions, ahead of teachers, clergy, and journalists, to name a few. With how COVID-19 has laid bare the massive science skepticism that exists in our country, it seems that many trust their own doctors and nurses, but not the scientific community at large. In your career, have you noticed a change in how people view scientists and medical professionals? And what do you think has driven this change? I agree with you, Lloyd, that individuals still trust, want to trust their doctor, their nurse, their healthcare provider. That personal relationship is so incredibly important to individuals and families, particularly during times of a very serious illness. And I think it's important for us not to lose sight of the importance of the doctor-patient uh, relationship or the nurse-patient relationship. So that's, that's at a personal level. But I, I think at a societal level, uh, we've all seen, uh, unfortunately, how medicine and healthcare has become politicized. And I, I think we've seen this trend growing, certainly over the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years. I think after the recession in the late 2000s, we began to see a number of Americans who were disenfranchised, perhaps because of socioeconomic factors, perhaps because of racial tensions, uh, or uh, other, other factors. And then when we added in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, in the early 2010s, uh, I think that that message uh, allowed a number of disenfranchised Americans to say, the government's trying to do something to me. The government's trying to make me do something. Now, let me just step aside a minute because I'm strongly supportive of the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I think it's been very good for many, many Americans. But what I'm really addressing here is, is how it became politicized. And along with, with a, a number of other components of, of our society led to a real division. And that division has only grown, as we've seen in our national politics, over the past four to six years. Um, extremely, extremely unfortunate. And then we had COVID on top of it. I think under normal circumstances, if we were back in the, the Walter Cronkite era, and Walter Cronkite came on television at night and delivered the messages about COVID, wear a mask, keep your distance, get vaccinated, take care of one another, Americans would have fallen into line. But now we've got such divisions of Fox versus CNN that most Americans don't know where to turn now for, for medical information and, and get most of their medical information off the internet. Um, it, it's just unfortunate and, and very, very tragic. So how do we get through this as a society? I agree with you wholeheartedly that we have to restore trust trust in our institutions. And, and I think that we begin to do that first at the personal level by supporting our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare providers to really emphasize the importance of trust in the relationship uh, with, with their patients. And then we build trust in, in our institutions. As a leader of an academic medical center, I'm sure you see how important it is for you to build trust in your institution. I certainly saw it uh, at, at the Brigham. 
and we scale from there. I think our, our federal government institutions have to be seen as sources of trust as well. Our CDC, our FDA, our NIH, there's a lot of rebuilding we need to do. That, that, those observations, Betsy, are so astute and uh, so meaningful to me and I know to our listeners as well. And, you know, as you look at how we as, as scientists, as physicians, communicate uncertainty. I mean, it strikes me that, that one of the challenges with COVID is um, this virus continuous, has continued to throw us, you know, curveballs. And, uh, and who knows what the next variant's going to be. And even early on, knowing the mode of transmission, it was, it, it was difficult to get the science we needed as quickly as we needed it. And one of the things that struck me is how we communicate uncertainty as, as scientists when we legitimately have uncertainty. Um, and are, are there lessons we can take away from the early days of the pandemic and communications coming from federal agencies and others about how maybe in the future we're more effective communicators of uncertainty and, and, and the need to update criteria and requirements um, and recommendations as we gather more knowledge? I think you're exactly right, Lloyd. Uh, as, as leaders in American medicine, we are communicators. Uh, and it's important that we take that role seriously. Uh, we, we, we need to communicate within our organizations, within our communities, at the local level, the state level, uh, and the national level as well. And you and I know that uh, American medicine is filled with uncertainty, as you've just stated. But it's important for us to be transparent about that to state clearly what we know and what we don't know. And what we anticipate will be changing over time to help prepare individuals. I'm sure you've had similar experiences to me where when you are in your community and you're visiting with colleagues who are not in medicine, they, they ask you, they don't understand the, the uncertainty. Somehow, uh, uh, we Americans have come uh, to, to be secure in medicine so that uh, people want definitive answers, uh, and we know that that's not always the case. Uh, so yes, we, we must be articulate. We must communicate what we know and what we don't know and what those uncertainties uh, will be. I, I think that may be one of the most important lessons uh, that we've learned from our COVID experience. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. Now, we're hopeful, of course, that we may be nearing an endemic phase for COVID-19 I'm wondering, from both a science and communication standpoint, Betsy, what are the challenges we face as we move into this stage of the pandemic, and how can we make sure uh, that we improve our communication methods and messages uh, as we navigate the next phase of the pandemic? Well, I, I think about moving forward uh, in, in a couple different uh, phases. I think there's first, there, there's the actual virus and what is it going to do and how will we respond? Uh, and I think it, it's now become very clear uh, that uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 will continue to mutate. There will be uh, more variants, uh, but we will be better prepared to deal with them. Um, first of all, uh, many of us have been vaccinated. Many have uh, had COVID, so herd immunity uh, is, is clearly uh, present. But importantly, we also now are well positioned to develop new RNA vaccines against the new variants. Uh, that work is going forward uh, by multiple companies. 
Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, the uh, COVID vaccine uh, will be combined with the flu vaccine uh, on a yearly basis. And it could be that every fall, uh, when we get our flu vaccine, that flu vaccine will be a combination of, a, of influenza plus COVID and maybe RSV or some other respiratory virus. That's moving forward. Uh, to me, that, that scientifically seems relatively straightforward. What I'm most concerned about are the psychological, emotional, mental, behavioral impacts of what we've just been through over the past two years. None of us have ever experienced this in our lifetime. Uh, and we, we didn't know, we couldn't predict, we didn't know what was going to be uh, next. And I think our healthcare workers uh, and our educators have suffered the biggest tolls. Uh, I certainly saw at the Brigham, and I'm sure you've seen uh, at Stanford, the burnout, the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD of our healthcare providers is absolutely remarkable. It's really as if they had been at war. They, they put their personal needs and their families aside and cared for patients day in and day out. They've been our heroes, our heroines. They have sacrificed their own lives for the lives of their patients. Um, and now coming out of it, we're looking back and saying, oh my goodness, we never anticipated we would be going through this. And so I care very, very deeply uh, about the emotional, psychological, and behavioral health, certainly of, of my colleagues at the Brigham, at Mass General Brigham, but, but colleagues across the country who, who have gone through so much. It's gonna take time. Um, I think as leaders of American institutions, we need to, to devote the resources and the care models and the attention that we need to, to help our healthcare providers get better. It will take time, it'll be slow, but we need to show them that we care and we're concerned, not only for their own personal safety, their family's safety, but also we will lose so many individuals in, in the healthcare uh, profession. So th that's what I really am focused on now as we think about the post-COVID recovery. That's so well stated and I've often been asked over these past two years, you know, how I'm doing or, or how I stay resilient. And what is continuously inspiring to me is the dedication and commitment, as you just mentioned, of, of, of our healthcare workforce, of all the way through the workforce from uh, the doctors, the nurses, uh, also the people, the food service workers, the custodians. Uh, it's been incredible to see that sustained sense of dedication and commitment, even with all the vicissitudes and uncertainties uh, that we've encountered. And, and I agree that, that we're only beginning to fathom the psychological effects of, of the amount of, of personal, sort of deferred personal maintenance, and, and in many cases, neglect of, of, of personal needs and, and, and uh, opportunities uh, in order to serve uh, the public uh, during these really challenging times. And um, I hope that maybe that will be something that will help us, to the topic we we're just talking about, help us rebuild the trust mm -hmm. that our yes. profession uh, should have and has enjoyed in the past is mm -hmm. the realization of the broader public that uh, mm -hmm. the healthcare workforce in America has been here for everyone and will continue to be here mm -hmm. for you as well. 
-hmm. that's certainly a message that, that we're trying to get out and and as yes. well as looking at how we support our people uh, yes. currently and what, for what we know is going to be a very prolonged recovery time. Yes. yes, I couldn't agree with you more. If we turn to a topic of leadership overall, and uh, while at Brigham and Women's, you prioritized innovation and collaboration. And could you tell us how a leader can cultivate this type of environment in an organization? There are many things you can point to uh, during your 11 years as president of Brigham and Women's uh, that you brought to the institution that are, is now inculcated in the DNA of the institution. But how did you go about doing it? What were some of the challenges? And how do we measure and quantify when we are becoming more innovative and collaborative? That's a very important question. And I think as we've talked about uh, earlier in, in the podcast, I think we both uh, agree that it's really important for uh, there to be uh, academic medical centers, uh, research institutions in this country uh, to really train the next generation of a physician uh, scientist. When I came back to the Brigham after leaving uh, the NIH, um, I, I saw the power of federal funding for medical research and what it could do. Uh, and I knew how dedicated the Brigham had been to academic medicine, uh, particularly under uh, Dr. Brownwald's uh, leadership. And many of those traditions continued. Uh, and so there already was fertile ground with many, many talented faculty uh, and students who had self-selected to be at the Brigham because they wanted to be physician scientists. They wanted to be innovators. They wanted to be uh, uh, creators. So it was very easy for me in that setting to simply be their champion, to really be their voice, uh, and, and to really communicate and articulate at every step along the way uh, that innovation, scientific discovery, creativity is simply part of our DNA. And what I found so exciting uh, is that message was really a catalyst not only for the people engaged in research, but for all of our other colleagues who embraced research and were at the Brigham because they wanted to be at a research institution. They, they may be a provider, a, a nurse, a technician caring for a patient, but they wanted to be engaged in clinical trials. They wanted to be engaged in, in the newest techniques. They wanted to be engaged in cutting edge uh, technologies. Uh, and, and so as a leader, uh, it was relatively easy and straightforward for me to do. But having said that, nonetheless, I worked hard at it uh, and made sure that we had a communication team that was focused on this and we reiterated the messages in any way uh, that we, we could. And um, we also then supported uh, uh, the innovation and scientific discoveries activity. First of all, uh, we uh, had a robust uh, scientific advisory board. Uh, we had uh, the Brigham Research Institute, the Brigham Education Institute put a, a lot of dollars towards those. Uh, we had all sorts of grant programs for students, for postdocs, for junior faculty, uh, bridging uh, grants to help uh, individuals get their, their career started. We facilitated uh, helping individuals start their academic uh, laboratories and research wherever we could. Um, and importantly, it was a message that I articulated to my Brigham board of directors every time we met. 
uh, and made sure that I had our scientists, uh, our clinicians presenting at board meetings to really talk about the exciting work that was being done. And then finally, I'd say uh, when I had the opportunity uh, to recruit uh, new department chairs, I looked for individuals who were physician scientists and who would be those leaders uh, within the organization. You know, when you talk about quantifying uh, and metrics to see how you're doing, there are a lot of the standard metrics that you can use, number of publications, citation factors, the number of grants, um, but you can also look at how people vote with their feet. When you have a research day, who shows up? Who presents? Who wants to be there? We ended up opening up our research day to our patient population. And it was remarkable the number of people from the community and our patients who would want to come in here and just sit in the lecture hall and, and listen to all of the exciting advances. That, that perhaps you can, you can quantify. But then there's the quality as well. When you see people enthusiastic, excited, uh, that, you know, eager uh, to, to engage in their work, I, I think that that's also a, a wonderful measure of how well we're doing as an institution. Absolutely. Betsy, you've been a leader of organizations with very different cultures, leader of a large NIH institute, the NHLBI, uh, and then leader of an extraordinarily prestigious academic hospital, academic medical center, uh, Brigham and Women's. What approaches did you use to learn new cultures and to maybe, could you talk about how you maybe had to adapt your leadership style mm -hmm relative to those different cultures and, and anything that, that you can teach our audience uh, about that and your leadership journey? A leader evolves over time to integrate new knowledge and new experiences into their leadership style. A leader, a leader matures uh, over time. I, I think there, there are two factors that I have long thought about in terms of leadership. One I'll call the local factor, and the other is the more generalizable factor. The local factor is whenever you go to a new institution, uh, there are going to be local cultures, local traditions, local way of doing things. And it's very important for a new leader to step back and listen and learn. Do a listening tour, pay attention, talk to all different types of constituents. What's important to patients, to students, to faculty, donors, to a board? Listen, what's important to them? What can you glean from them? How can you bring them under the tent with you? That's critically important. And I can assure you there are vast differences between an academic medical center and a federal government uh, agency. <laughs> important lessons that, that I learned there. But then I, I think on a more general level, there are traits that a leader has that I think transcends the local culture. A leader needs to motivate and inspire. A leader needs to listen and to be respectful, to be respectful of all members of the community, whether it be, again, patients or students or faculty or board members or colleagues, members of the local community. Respect is enormously important. A leader needs to be the true north for an institution and articulate the set of values 
that are important for that, that uh, in institution. Individuals want to look to their leader and see themselves in that leader and be inspired, be inspired uh, by them. And when you think about being the true north, I, I've often thought, you know, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward set of values. It's about respect. It's about dignity. It's about integrity. Um, it, it's about elevating everyone around you. It's about supporting others so they can be the best versions uh, of, of themselves. Easy to articulate, but much tougher to do. Um, but I, I think that that's the wonderful work of being a leader. When you can see how you can help raise up others around you and help them be the best versions of themselves. That, that's really what brought me great satisfaction as a leader. That's, that's so inspiring and so well stated. In closing, Betsy, we're heading into year three of this pandemic. What gives mm -hmm. you optimism about the future? Yeah. When I, I think about the future, I, I am an optimist. I, I think about what Maya Angelou taught us. Remember when she said, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. And when you think about that, as leaders, we have an opportunity to really focus on relationships. For me, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. It's about how your relationship with another individual, how do you make them, them feel? And so I, I'm a, 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 a tremendous optimist. I truly believe in the power of the human spirit to face adversity, to be resilient, and to move forward for the greater good. That's fantastic. Well, Betsy, thank you so much for joining today, and thank you for listening to the Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with Executive Vice President of Strategy at Modex Therapeutics, Dr. Betsy Nabel. Please check out my conversations with other groundbreaking and brilliant guests as we continue to look at leadership during a once-in-a-generation crisis. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.